Welcome to Legal Lens, a DebtWire podcast on legal issues. My name is Eileen Ramia. With me today is Kat Burke, where we'll be discussing the Lockdue Flambeau case pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. The case goes to the intersection of tribal law and the bankruptcy code. Kat is a corporate restructuring attorney and has represented debtors, creditors, and equity holders in large restructurings with an emphasis on sovereign debt and cross-border cases. Kat has also served as in-house counsel for a sovereign Native American tribe and clerked for Judge James Peck of the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of New York, which makes her an ideal guest for today's episode on this Supreme Court case. Kat is also a decorated military vet and served overseas with the U.S. Army. Welcome, Kat, and thank you for taking the time to join me here today. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. So let's dive right in. The heart of the Lockdue Flambeau case really centers on a singular question. Does the bankruptcy code abrogate tribal sovereign immunity? And my understanding is that this question stems from the intersection of two provisions of the bankruptcy code. The first is Section 106A, which provides that sovereign immunity of a governmental unit is abrogated with respect to certain provisions of the code, and Section 10127, which defines the term governmental unit. Now, Kat, I really would love if you could explain what the issue is and what the question the court will be trying to answer. Right. So there's a um, there's a lot of paper on this case and a lot of people have weighed in. And the case really comes down to three words. What does other domestic government mean? And does that mean tribes? And that comes up in the context of, as you said, the definition of governmental unit. Now, it's important to go over the definition because um, this is really what the whole case is about. So the term governmental unit means the United States, a state, a commonwealth, a district, a territory, municipality, a foreign state, department agency, or instrumentality of the United States, but not the United States trustee while serving in a case under this title, a state, a commonwealth, a district, a territory, a municipality, or foreign state, or other foreign or domestic government. Now that's that's where the important part comes in. And so going back to, well, how do we get to the, the abrogation of sovereign immunity? When you look at section 106, you're then looking at the, the clause which says, notwithstanding an assertion of sovereign immunity, sovereign immunity is abrogated as to a governmental unit as set forth, uh, and then it lists a whole bunch of sections of the bankruptcy code that that it applies to. So the the question is, do tribes fit into that definition of governmental unit such that their sovereign immunity is waived? Thank you for that. And I, I think to understand, you know, why and how such an issue came about, it would be helpful to sort of have a quick primer on this notion of tribal sovereign immunity how and when it's waived, and just how tribes have historically been treated under the bankruptcy code. I don't know if you could speak to that. Sure. So sovereign immunity is something that the tribes hold incredibly dear. And that's why you have uh, so many people weighing in on this issue. Um, Sovereign immunity can be abrogated only by Congress. And it has to be clear. And it has to um, be intentional. 
And so when you're looking at uh, whether Congress has abrogated sovereign immunity, you have this clear statement of um, abrogation. And this also applies to states as well. So Congress can abrogate sovereign immunity for the states, they can abrogate sovereign immunity for themselves, and they can abrogate sovereign, sovereign immunity for tribes. Um, but the most important thing is it, it has to be it has to be clear. And uh, Congress has to have considered the issue of waiving sovereign immunity. They can't do it accidentally. They can't, you know, so um, whenever there's a question that comes up, the court will look very carefully at the legislative history, uh, whether Congress considered the issue and, and how they considered it. So in this case, and in this sense, the, the history is incredibly important. Now, you'll recall from the definition I read earlier, and you know some of you may want to go back and check, no, nowhere did I say tribe. Nowhere did I say Indian nation or uh, any of those terms we typically use. A lot of congressional statutes will specifically waive sovereign immunity. They'll specifically note tribes. And, and what, what is often the case is that um, tribes are treated similar to states when, they, when, the, when the question of abrogation comes, but also similar to states in many federal legislation. And that's really because tribes and states are considered to be on par with one another when it comes to the federal government and how they look at tribes and states. So Kat, I want to dive a bit deeper into how tribes have historically been treated under the bankruptcy code and as prior iterations. As you noted, the definition of governmental unit under the code makes no mention of tribes, but that hasn't always been the case, right? Right. In the 1978 code, there's no mention of tribes. But interestingly, in the Pre-Code Act, the Bankruptcy Act of 1898, tribes were included in the definition of state. They were also included in the definition of courts. So what happened? In 1921, these terms were removed to, quote unquote, modernize the language of the act. And in order to understand what this means, you really need to understand the history of tribes in the United States. At the same time that the 1898 Bankruptcy Act was enacted, Congress passed the Dawes Act. And the Dawes Act was disastrous for tribes. What it did was allocated tribal territory to tribal members and eliminated tribal reservations. So by 1921, when this uh, amendment was put in for the act, there were no longer tribal territories or tribal courts that were relevant to the bankruptcy law. So they took the language out. Now, since then, in 1934, the Indian Reorganization Act reversed the Dawes Act and brought back reservations, brought back Indian territory. We now have uh, Indian reservations and Indian courts. But interestingly, that language has never come back into the 1898 Bankruptcy Act or into the you know, post what we currently have is the 1978 Bankruptcy Code. Okay, so we have a situation where tribes aren't in the code anymore, or at least mentioned explicitly in the code. Now, I guess I'm going to ask you kind of a basic question. Does Congress actually have to use the word tribe? Does it have to be there to abrogate sovereign immunity? No. So it doesn't need to be there. It doesn't need to actually use the word tribe or you know, Native America or something that would you know we would recognize as tribe. But it does have to consider what would happen if tribal sovereign immunity was waived. And so it needs to use something that we recognize. 
one of the terms that tribes have been referred to is as domestic dependent nations. And this is in Supreme Court cases going all the way back. But that's not the term that's used in the bankruptcy code. They use other domestic governments. There's a difference. Domestic dependent nation, other domestic government. Yeah. So, Kat, thank you for that quick primer. Um, I think it would be helpful to sort of dive into the facts of the Lac du Flambeau case itself and sort of have an idea of how we even got to this point and how this case is before the Supreme Court. Sure. So this case came about because of a, um, there was a Chapter 13 debtor who had got into a bit of financial trouble and filed an individual bankruptcy case. And the fact that this is a Chapter 13 case, I think is very interesting because there are most of the Supreme Court cases you would expect to be under Chapter 11 or Chapter 7, but here we are in the Chapter 13 case. So it's an individual debtor case. And he took out a payday loan, among other things. And he took it out from this company called Lendgreen, which is a, an instrumentality of the tribe. Now, when this gentleman filed for bankruptcy protection, he was granted uh, an, an automatic stay, as, you know, as is the case with every bankruptcy case, chapter 11, 7, 13, um, doesn't really matter. And he put forward a plan and um, was working through his debts. When Len Green contacted him and requested payment, now Mr. Coughlin told them, you should contact my lawyers. There's an automatic stay, which most people would do. And um, they said, well, that doesn't really apply to us because we are an arm of the tribe and they, there is sovereign immunity from suit and we are, we're not subject to the automatic stay. So we can continue to um, request that you, uh, that, that you, that you make payment. And so the tribe um, was brought into the case by the debtor who filed um, a, uh, a motion seeking for the for Langreen to, to to cease and to comply with the automatic stay, and the tribe filed a motion to dismiss, saying we're immune from suit; you can't sue us. So the bankruptcy court found that that the tribe did have sovereign immunity and that there was no abrogation and that they weren't a governmental unit. Uh, There was an appeal that went up to the First Circuit and the First Circuit reversed. And so the bankruptcy court seems to take, I guess, is conservative the right word, a more conservative approach because tribes were not explicitly mentioned in the definition of governmental unit. And so they found that they were not and their sovereignty had not been abrogated versus the dis- the circuit court, which really relied on sort of dictionary definitions to come to the conclusion that they were included in the definition and therefore their sovereignty was abrogated. 
That's exactly right. I mean, the fact that people are debating this says to me, it's not quite clear. I, I don't know about you, but that's that's how it seems to me. Based on historically how Congress has sort of approached the issue of abrogation of sovereignty, which is a really big deal, um, you would think that they would be explicit about it because they've done it before in the past in terms of how they've addressed and approached this issue. I don't know if you feel similarly or differently about that. Uh, well, I, I completely agree. It's, you know, so the question is, is there ambiguity? Is it really the question is, is there an unequivocal waiver here? Can you read this that, that there's no plausible way that they excluded tribes um, in, in the term other domestic government? So I took a really careful look. And look, I'm not a Supreme Court justice, but um, let's let's see where it goes. But I, I took a really careful look at the of the definition of governmental unit, and when you look at it, it has all of these units. Uh, it starts out with the United States, goes on to a state, then a commonwealth, a district, territory. All of these things really fall underneath the the United States and the states. They have then they have a foreign state is listed. And then they have this catch-all that says other foreign or domestic government. And so I think to me, at least when you're reading this um, this list and you have this catch-all phrase uh, and you go to the, you know, the doctrine of Judean generous, the collective term at the end should be reflective of the terms that are in the, the statute itself. And the other foreign government, well, that falls off of the foreign government, the foreign state, and the other domestic governments. I mean, there's there's definitely lower domestic governments that are not included in this list that I believe Congress intended to include, right? For like a, a water district, for example, is not listed in this. That would be a domestic government of sorts. Um, but tribes are, you know, tribes are sort of on par with what you would expect to be with a state or a commonwealth or a territory. And here, they're just not included in that list. So could they be considered an other domestic government? It doesn't seem that's what Congress intended. And when you look at the history of the Bankruptcy Code and its enactment and the amendment of this particular provision of, of the 106 Waiver of Sovereign Immunity, Congress doesn't even consider how it would affect tribes. And as you mentioned earlier, tribes originally had been included in the definition of state, but that Congress had made amendments and took them out and never actually put them back in. Right. And that is so fascinating because had it done so and had it included tribes in the definition of state, then, then tribes could potentially use the bankruptcy code um, to benefit you know, any organization that needs restructuring, tribal organization that needs restructuring under, under chapter nine, potentially. One of the arguments in the, um, in the respondents case is that tribes will benefit from being considered a, a domestic government because they'll get certain rights under the bankruptcy code. But actually, um, first of all, all of the, all of the tribal Briefs 
are are saying we don't really want them. Uh, but the the benefits there are not benefits that the tribe the tribes necessarily need or want, like the the power of taxation. Now, it's true tribes do have the the ability to tax members, but I wouldn't say that that's something that they're you know desperate for getting in the bankruptcy code. Right, and they they had also mentioned they believe the petitioners had stated in their papers that other benefits would include priority for certain unsecured claims and also exceptions to discharge. So to the extent that tribes are considered a governmental unit and abrogated, those are some potential benefits to it, but they're also cons. Right. And they get, and, and they don't get any of the benefits that um, municipalities get by being included in um the definition of you know who can file for chapter nine and what what does it mean to be a state and um, being included under those those definitions. So so it's actually the worst of all worlds for the tribe to be shoved into this governmental unit catch-all phrase at the end and not to be considered a state. I mean, if if, if anything, tribes should be arguing that they should be a state. So do you have any views on just how the court should come out on this? I'm putting you in a tough spot. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think, look, I, I think, you know, if you if you read the cases and you understand tribal sovereignty, that it's or even state sovereignty, that it's for Congress to make it very clear. And unless Congress has made it clear, then we should be deferring to Congress. The court should be deferring to Congress. And look, it can go back. It, there is. It's so easy. I mean, look, I divided Congress, it, um, you know, understanding that we have a, a bit of a issue with Congress getting things done. However, um, you know, we shouldn't lean on the courts to shoehorn tribes into this group so that the, uh, on something that is so incredibly important, just because we think, well, Congress is never going to do it. I mean, co- Congress did amend the bankruptcy code section 106 previously. And they did it specifically because the scope of the abrogation of states and federal government's waiver wasn't clear. So if the Supreme Court said it's not clear, then Congress could go back and just put tribes into the definition of state, like they normally do with most federal legislation, if they wanted to. And maybe they don't. Maybe they don't want to. Um, maybe that I, I think that we should consider, you know, whether Congress wants to include tribes in this legislation, because, you know, often they don't include tribes and maybe the tribes don't want to be included. And that's something that I think needs to be considered as well. And and so why would tribes not want to be included? What do you think? Well, so tribes, well, tribes are governments, they have governments. Um, they, there's, they're different from sort of that long list that we read out in 10127. Um, most of the tribes have enterprises that fund the activities of the tribe, but they don't have all of the typical 
powers that a municipality or a state might have when it comes to being able to effectively tax their members, their tax people on the reservation to, um, you know, enforce fines. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things that tribes for historical reasons and practical reasons just aren't acting in a uh, governmental way with respect to people that aren't tribal. And so this sovereign immunity issue, um, having a waiver of its sovereign immunity uh, could, could open itself up to a lot of different issues. One of, one of which I think is not as explored in the briefing, but once the tribe's sovereign immunity is waived, there's nothing stopping someone from suing the tribe after a bankruptcy has been filed in an adversary proceeding. Now, that just can't happen right now. And an adversary proceeding can be anything, you know, arising from the bankruptcy or related to. The tribes, many of them, don't have the resources to fight these cases. And they don't typically have bankruptcy lawyers who um, attend and participate in proceedings like like states do. And I think that's sort of tangential to my, I guess, my last question for you, which is what are the implications of a ruling one way or the other? You sort of have talked about potentially opening up the doors to um, risk of litigation, bankruptcy litigation specifically for tribes, but are there other implications to the ruling one way or the other? So first and foremost, bankruptcy litigation um, and and having the potential, not just for bankruptcy litigation, but any kind of litigation brought through a bankruptcy procedure and an adversary proceeding or, or anything like that. And, and not only just that, but that people could potentially manufacture bankruptcy cases to get around sovereign immunity simply to file um, a case against the tribes. That's one, that's one issue. But also if, if we're looking at the language here and saying, well, okay, so they're in this other domestic government uh, definition, then it opens up other federal legislation that you have to look at very carefully and see, well, what other implications are there for, for tribes? And, you know, how, how, how do they affect tribes? And that's, that's, a, that's a really big exercise to go through federal legislation and see whether tribes could fit into this strange category or whether there's any similar language in other federal legislation that might implicate tribes in some way by by calling them domestic governments or other domestic governments. Um, it's a it's a can of worms, I think. Yeah, like a potentially potential slippery slope in a way. It is a slippery slope. Now, I mean, there are cases where they say, well, every government should should collect tribes and any government is enough. But that's not what the definition here says in the bankruptcy code. It's not every any and every government or even any either of those terms. It's, you know, it lists a bunch of things and then it has this catch-all phrase. Very, very interesting. So we'll find out in a few weeks when they have oral argument on April 24th. And um, it'll be interesting to see how the parties present before the court. Absolutely.
I can't wait. <laughs> Me neither. So we'll find out soon. It's not often my two loves of, of the law come together in a case, but <laughs> this is just a really, really interesting one. Super fascinating. Kat, thank you so much for such a fantastic discussion on this topic. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to DebtWire's Legal Lens, a monthly series on legal issues impacting restructuring and the distressed industry at large. Subscribe or download Legal Lens episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.